Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Here we go. Another live special edition of Political Rewind uh, in, on Friday afternoon. It's been in many ways a long week. On the other hand, it feels like it's just flown by because I think we're also focused on the election. We've lost track of what day it is, but I'm really thrilled to have all of you with us again. You've been terrific out there listening to the show, uh, whether it's live or on our podcast, on the web, on Facebook. Uh, and telling us that you really have appreciated our conversations this week. And I have real um, respect for the fact that um, you feel like we have done the kind of job that's in uh, helping you learn what's going on. All right, let's get right to the uh, panel today. Um, we're joined again today by Stephen Fowler, GPB's political reporter. Stephen, I get to use one of my favorite words in describing you today. You have been, here it comes, indefatigable. I love that word. You have been non-stop all week, and I'm very grateful that you would come on the show this afternoon with all the other things you've got to do. Thanks for being here. I will always make time to be on Political Rewind. <laughs> the right thing to say. Thank you very much, Stephen. Uh, Tia Mitchell, AJC political reporter, is also a Washington correspondent, I should say. Tia, I told you right before the show went on the air, I turned on MSNBC at about 4 o'clock this morning as I was flipping between uh, MSNBC, CNN, and Fox, and I saw you. Uh, so you've been up all night. Pretty much, Bill. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today as well. Um, we're joined by uh, Alan Abramowitz, Dr. Alan Abramowitz, professor of political science at Emory University. Alan, I sent you a note early this morning and basically, I think, said I could not imagine, uh, given how you have been with us through thick and thin on this election for the past year, that uh, having you on today is just very meaningful. Thank you for joining us, Alan. Oh, yeah, I'm delighted to be with you. It's, uh, it's a very exciting time right now here in Georgia. You know, um, I want to just one word, and, and then we'll uh, introduce our final panelists. You know, Alan, I, I want to go back to your 2018 book, The Great Alignment, Race, Party Transformation, and the Rise of Donald Trump, which is even more appropriate in many ways today as we've watched the president and his supporters respond to how the election is unfolding. In that book, you uh, coined the phrase negative partisanship. Very quickly, give us a little description of what that means and how it applies to what we're dealing with this week. Sure. Um, basically, it refers to the fact that we're seeing uh, that voters are increasingly influenced by their intense dislike of the opposing party and its leaders uh, to an e even more than they're motivated by their attraction to or uh, liking for their own party and its leaders. And we clearly are seeing that in this, in this election, although I would say with Republicans, Republicans are very strongly attracted to President Trump, but one of the main reasons is because they see him as constantly attacking the other side. Mm. Um, I, I went on Amazon because I knew I was going to talk about the book, so I wanted to see if it was available. And Amazon says there's only five left in stock, so if people oh, want to buy it, they should jump on it. Aren't you glad to hear that, copies. Alan? Yeah, I have a few extra copies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're also joined for the first time today by someone who has suddenly gotten an enormous amount of attention for good reason, Robin Kemp. Robin Kemp uh, created and uh, is the main force behind the Clayton Crescent. Robin, uh, it's great to have you here. Just give us a couple words about why you decided the Clayton Crescent needed to be born. Well, Bill, thank you, first of all, for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Um, I was, for about two years, working for the Clayton News Daily, which is now the Clayton News, comes out weekly. And Henry Harold, they belong to the same company, SDNI, 
And I was one of many staff members who were laid off because of COVID-19 in about April. And I immediately, the minute I got off the phone with my boss, got up, walked to the next room, grabbed the first passable template I could find and, and made a version of the site that isn't online right now. And, and just kept doing what I always do. I just kept doing it. And, you know, while I'm taking my unemployment check, I had to pass the time somehow. And I felt that Clayton County really needs to have a, a serious news presence because so much goes on here that it's uncovered. No one covers it down here. It's a big economic driver for Metro Atlanta. And you uh, were up virtually all night. You were at the Clayton Election uh, Counting uh, Headquarters. You filed a story for uh, Clayton Crescent. The headline is Clayton County on World Stage as Georgia Flips Blue Overnight. And we'll talk about Clayton more specifically in just a couple minutes. But, uh, Stephen Fowler, let's start with the fact that um, I think, and you may have even more updated figures, but I think as of 2.09 this afternoon, uh, Joe Biden was leading uh, President Trump by well over 1,500 votes. Uh, that's a very, very narrow margin. Has there been an update uh, beyond 1,500, Stephen? Best I can tell, Bill, it is still 1,500. There are still you know, a few thousand ballots that we know about to be counted, as well as provisional military and overseas ballots, which the president is very interested in, by the way and um, some absentee ballots that need curing. So tight, tight, tight race to undersell it. Do we know where those outlying uh, ballots uh, are coming from or should come from? There are still some, I believe, to be processed in Gwinnett. Um, Some of the totals that were there before the Secretary of State's office mentioned were just the counties uploading them into the wrong batch. So instead of putting their early votes in, they put them on election day. But really, uh, as the days or as the hours tick down in this day, you will see more and more counties finalize things and clear things out and the margin creep a little bit more and more towards finality. Uh, So Gwinnett County has some outstanding ballots. Uh, Alan, uh, Biden has uh, leads in Gwinnett County. Uh, by 18 points over President Trump. So I assume we can imagine that a great many of those ballots that come in will be Trump ballots. Yes, Alan? You mean Biden ballots? I don't mean, I mean Biden ballots. I meant Biden ballots. Well, here's what we know as well, um, that almost regardless of where these additional ballots are coming from, that Biden is likely to gain ground. And that's because they're absentee ballots. And what we've seen in Georgia, just like in Pennsylvania and in other states, is that the absentee ballots are cast overwhelmingly by Democrats. Um, And so as they're counted, we see Biden's lead increasing. Um, So almost regardless of where they're from, obviously, if they're from a Democratic stronghold, it's going to uh, they're going to increase Biden's lead by more. But um, whatever's left out there, uh, as it's counted, is, is likely to increase. Uh, Biden's lead in Georgia, just as we're seeing in Pennsylvania, where there are a lot more ballots still out. Uh, Atia Allen makes a really good point. Um, there has been this uh, feeling that uh, absentee ballots uh, in red counties would maybe be Trump ballots. But as Allen points out, what we've learned is that it's Democrats who voted absentee and Republicans who voted in person. And they did that because the president told him to vote in person, Dia. Right. So this is kind of, you know, the the thing about it is we shouldn't get too bogged down in how people voted. Of course, that's affecting as results have come in because the counting of in-person ballots is more instantaneous than some of those absentee ballots. But, you know, I think, you know, Republicans are using that to their to feel a narrative that there's some type of difference or partisanship in the ballots themselves. And it's like, that's not the case. It's just people voted in different ways. And quite frankly, Trump and Republicans encouraged their supporters to vote in person. Robin, uh, the differential between Trump and Biden in your county in Clayton, Biden was 70, was running 71 points ahead 
of Trump in Clayton. And commentators on, on all of the uh, cable shows have made the point that it was in Clayton County where uh, Biden finally overcame the Trump lead, however narrowly. Uh, and Clayton, of course, one of the strongholds of Congressman John Lewis. Robin? Yeah, I, well, those numbers pretty much track with the fact that Clayton is a 70-plus percent blue county anyway. Uh, both Congressman Lewis and uh, uh, Representative David Scott in the 13th are part of Clayton County. And the county is overwhelmingly African-American and Democratic, so it, it wasn't going to come out any other way. Um, Stephen, you mentioned kind of in passing that President Trump was especially interested in what's happening to Georgia military ballots. And you're, of course, correct. He tweeted about that uh, about two hours ago, maybe, saying, what's happened? Where are the where is the votes for the military uh, in Georgia? I have never tweeted back to the president of the United States, but I had to. I simply said no partisanship here. Military ballots will be counted starting tonight, as is standard procedure in Georgia. Have I got that right, Stephen? Right. So, Mr. President, if you're listening to Political Rewind, which you should be, because <laughs> it's, it's the center of the political universe right now, um, there are people who can vote in Georgia that don't physically live here with military and overseas ballots. Many of those have already been returned and already been counted. But because it takes a little bit longer for a ballot to get from, say, Japan to Georgia than it does from, you know, uh, Douglasville, there's more time allowed in the state law to have those ballots counted. So as long as they are postmarked by Tuesday, Election Day, and received by 5 p.m. today in the county elections offices, the military and overseas ballots may count. So of the ones that were sent out, nearly 9,000 of them have not yet been returned. Some people are interpreting that as there's 9,000 votes still out there that haven't been counted, but that's not the case. People can request ballots and not vote on them, and some of them may come in on time, but the rest, you know, 17,000 or so, have already come in from people who voted and returned their ballot. So that's where these quote-unquote missing ballots are, Mr. President. You're welcome. Well, wait. So the 17,000 that have come back, have already been counted or they're okay. They have been. Okay. okay. Yeah. For the most, for the most part. Yes. I mean, those, those have been included in the totals that the secretary of state's office have been providing at regular intervals throughout these last several days. Tia, uh, you came down to Atlanta to cover the election and have been doing a great job of that here. I know you're heading back to Washington, uh, tonight. Uh, we're going to miss you. We've really enjoyed having you here, but, um, what is how have you felt having a front row seat to watch this state where you lived for, uh, well before you uh, finally went up to Washington to be the AJC's Washington reporter? Uh, what do you make of the possibility? We're still not sure that Georgia is about to turn blue. Right. And first of all, you won't miss me because I'll be back to cover runoffs in a, <laughs> about a month. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's been great to be here on the ground. You know, it's hard to try to cover elections from the other side of the country, sometimes it feels like. Um, and I do feel like there's a lot of energy, particularly among Democrats, of course, that this could be the year that Georgia turns blue and what that means for the coalition that Democrats have built, particularly when it comes to black voters and other uh, minority populations. So... You know, it's been really interesting to watch in real time, and I'm also interested to continue to watch how Republicans deal with the shift. Because right now, as we watch with uh, President Trump leading the party, you know, right now they're dealing with the shift by, you know, making false claims and trying to, you know, find paths that don't seem to be there for victory. But what happens when the if and when they have no choice but to accept the fact that a Democrat has won statewide in Georgia. Do we think, by the way, Alan, just to, do, do we think Georgia will, uh, in fact, go to Biden? I mean, I know you can't quite prognosticate that, not 
knowing exactly where the outstanding votes are. But does it appear that Georgia will, in fact, stay in the Biden column tonight? Yeah, I think it's better than 50-50. I think it's more likely than not. Um, Obviously, it depends on the remaining ballots to be counted. Um, My guess is that that 1,500 vote lead will will increase somewhat, um, depending on how many absentee ballots we still have to count. Um, So, uh, yeah, I think think there's a good chance. I think there's a better chance that Pennsylvania will be called for Biden before Georgia is, though. Uh, We're going to have a recount. I don't don't expect Georgia to be called any time in the near future. Yeah, uh, Pennsylvania is getting close. And in fact, the Biden campaign is getting set. We're told, uh, Amelia told me uh, right before we went on the air that CNN is saying the Biden people are ready with a speech by Joe Biden tonight. They've already got a stage set up in Wilmington. Uh, Mm -hmm. They apparently are expecting they may have some pretty good news out of Pennsylvania. Robin, I want to play a soundbite for you, and then I want to bring everybody else in on it. But but you were kind of at the heart of some of what we're about to hear. Donald Trump Jr. was in Atlanta last night. He was at a small rally of Trump supporters in downtown. Uh, Doug Collins uh, was with him. Uh, So was Vernon Jones, the state representative, African-American state representative, who became a very uh, outspoken Trump supporter, got a pretty good spot at the convention, a Republican convention, to talk about Trump. Uh, Let's just listen to what Don Jr. had to say last night. And then let's all talk about the way in which the Trump campaign is responding uh, to what's happening. Georgia, it's going to be important. And I'm excited to have these guys on our team, as well as Kelly Loeffler and the others that are going to be coming down to be a part of this. David Perdue and Sonny Perdue, all of these people that are Georgia guys that understand what's happening here, they're a part of this team because guess what? You're going to have another election here in about two months that could decide the fate of the United States Senate. So we're going to be watching this nonsense because everyone knows what's going on. Everyone understands it. And the media, who, let's not kid ourselves, have given up the pretense of objectivity to be cheerleaders for the left. They're going to go nuts. But Donald Trump is going to fight each and every one of these things so we have a fair election, regardless of that outcome. Americans need to know that this is not a banana republic. And right now, right now, right now, very few people have faith that that's not the case. Um, Robin, like his father, Donald Trump Jr. has accused uh, election officials in virtually every state where it has leaning blue uh, of corruption, of fraud, of trying to rig the election. And your piece in the Clayton Crescent overnight uh, describe some of that. You had a Trump observer uh, that you kept your eye on down there. I, I don't know if being disruptive is the correct term. You'll tell me if it's not, but certainly uh, making a big show of being there. Talk about that a little. Yeah, actually, it was more like a dozen of them. Uh, and oh, okay. There was a rotating cast, okay? Early, like around the middle of the day, there were a few people there when I got there. There was one who had a a badge, an official badge from the county that he wore, and he seemed to be kind of running the show. Uh, But there were other people who came in in other teams and and at different points in the evening as the counting progressed. Uh, At one point, you know, I think after midnight last night when it was getting really close to the wire, a whole bunch of new people came in, and some guy was hollering, Team A, you're over here. Team B, you're in there. You know, they just—they were bringing in people in ones and twos and threes all day. Uh, there was an attorney with, uh, what was it, the Republican National Lawyers Committee or something. He—he uh, he was in there around noon or just before noon with someone else who, another suit, right, from, I believe, directly from the Trump campaign, not just from, like, the the local or county or state GOP. Um, A lot of the people who were there were, they looked like young Republicans, but they said that they had already graduated from college. So they were, like, younger people in the party. And a lot of them had Purdue cards from the, I guess, from the uh, David Purdue campaign uh, business cards. So they basically made a big show of we're watching you. And even one, the guy who had the badge even said this to another person who was an observer and said, 
know, it's good that there's a lot of us in here because it prevents basically any shenanigans from happening and lets them know we're watching. And that's fine. That's part of the job of an observer. But it, it felt more aggressive, like people were pacing and, you know, going in and out or, or going right up to the line or stepping over the line and complaining that they couldn't see the signature verification on the other side of the room. Um, I, I heard several different allegations of different kinds of impropriety. And every time I pressed any of these people on it, they didn't want to get specific. So for whatever that's worth. Um, Tia, uh, we all know that the president last night in the briefing room at the White House uh, gave probably one of the most, and I don't think it's partisan to say, outrageous statements of his four years in office, um, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, the way in which he uh, uh, talked about the election as being corrupt, being fraudulent, uh, was a disservice to our democratic institutions and his accusations of fraud, of manipulation by Democrats, uh, most of them were lies to you. Right. And, you know, a lot of media pulled back, either didn't carry it live after a while or did a lot of rigorous fact checking in real time. But we know that there are people who hang on to every word that President Trump says. They believe him. He is, um, it is working his misinformation and and inaccuracies are affecting people. You know, even we saw Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Congresswoman-elect, we've seen U.S. Representative Jody Heiss repeat some of these problematic claims. And, And it's not good because there are people at home that are watching and believing it. And now they're questioning the integrity of the election. Uh, Stephen, I want to jump, get you in here, and then I have a soundbite to play for you, Alan Abramowitz, talking about negative partisanship. But first, Stephen, um, you have spent an enormous amount of time with election officials, with election workers, uh, as you've covered the elections. And 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 again, without I, I, I can only say this is not a partisan comment, but for the president to say that there's been fraud in the Georgia election— that the Democrats are trying to steal it is such an extraordinary disservice to the women and men who have been working 18-hour days processing votes, some of them volunteers, trying to get it right. And even the Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, I think most of us would say has done about as transparent and straightforward a job as he possibly could in how he's overseen the election. I'll respond to that. Yeah. So in covering Georgia's election administration, you know, there are 159 county supervisors tasked with making things run and work. I've talked this year alone with probably about 130 of them, people who get uh, abuse from all sides, complaints, troubleshooting things, getting up two, three, four in the morning for several weeks to make every election run, not just a presidential election, but you've got primaries and local elections and everything, that they are the ones making these votes count. And so it's insulting to those people making the votes work that elected officials who are in office because of local elections officials making sure things run smoothly to spread this sort of disinformation about it. And the other thing is, you know, thinking about the vote counting and how things work. Um, I remember once upon a time, not too long ago, when Republicans were indignant that Stacey Abrams and Democrats said things about Georgia's election and suggesting that the vote totals in the governor's race, you know, weren't rightfully done and there was voter suppression and stealing. So really what it does is exposes this partisan hypocrisy that is using any sort of cudgel available to try to stay into power and just blatantly disregarding our democratic norms. And like you said, it's not a partisan thing. You know, there was a Republican state house representative who had to have his election redone three times because the voting wasn't done correctly. And Stacey Abrams was there to back him up. And so it's really disheartening to see elected officials who do know better and should know better willfully ignore the rules and regulations that put them into power. And if I may jump So, in. Alan, I want to give you a chance. 
I want to give you a chance at this, but but I but I want to add to what the conversation has already been. This sound, Newt Gingrich last night on Sean Hannity. Newt Gingrich, now a resident of the U.S. Embassy in Vatican City because Donald Trump named his wife Callista to be the ambassador to the Vatican. So Newt's living a, a high life in Rome. And this is just one of the things he said, Alan, on the Sean Hannity show last night. I am the angriest Do we have it? I have been in that entire six decades. You have a group of corrupt people who have absolute contempt for the American people, who believe that we are so spineless, so cowardly, so unwilling to stand up for ourselves, that they can steal the presidency. My hope is that President Trump will lead the millions of Americans who understand exactly what's going on, that the Atlanta machine is corrupt and they're trying to steal the presidency and we should not allow them to do that. First of all, under federal law, we should lock up the people who are breaking the law. You stop somebody from being an observer, you just broke federal law. Alan? Well, you know, that's, that's Newt being Newt. Um, you know, this is yeah. the Newt Gingrich we've come to, to, to know and love uh, going back quite a few years. He's a bomb thrower. Uh, he's pouring gasoline on the fire. Um, obviously, there's absolutely no basis and no factual basis to these allegations that he's making. I believe he also is urging uh, Trump to have the attorney general uh, send federal marshals in to um, seize, seize the ballots or some, something along those lines. So, uh, you, you know, um, we're hearing a few, few other Republicans saying similar things or not, maybe not quite that incendiary, but you know, Lindsey Graham is also uh, endorsing what Trump had to say. Was Lindsey Graham, who was once a harsh critic of Donald Trump when he was running for president initially. Um, but some other Republicans are pulling back. Um, for example, Chris Christie was, was very critical of, uh, of Trump's remarks and, and some others as well. Um, Mitch McConnell, who's probably the single most important Republican right now on this, was the sort of um, Parsing his words, I would say, um, you know, saying uh, every legal vote should be counted, which is kind of, you know, trying to straddle the divide here. But uh, in, in the end, I don't think Trump's going to be able to stop the ballots from being counted. And I don't think he's going to be able to stop Joe Biden from becoming the next president of the United States. But uh, Tia, as you know, it, it, Alan's so right. It is Newt being Newt. He's been this way since he was first elected to Congress back in the late 70s. In fact, before he was first elected. But, but uh, there are people out there who take what he and, uh, and Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz are saying very seriously. And it's going to create some complications in the post-election uh, world that Joe Biden, if he is elected president, is going to face to you. Right. And I just think we need to note that they are showing no evidence to back up their claim. You know, they say let every vote be counted. That's legal. But they have no evidence that illegal votes are being counted. Right. So let's do this. Um, let's get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, let's keep talking a little bit more about the presidential race here in Georgia. And then let's move on. And uh, apparently I didn't even see this until a couple minutes ago, about a half an hour ago. The New York Times made a call in uh, one of the big races here in Georgia. We'll talk about that after the break. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Tia Mitchell, Washington correspondent of the AJC, Robin Kemp, the force behind the Clayton Crescent, Professor Alan Abramowitz, Emory University, and uh, GPB political reporter Stephen Fowler 
are with us, and we appreciate it. Um, Stephen, when I said that we just got a call from the New York Times, the New York Times now says Carolyn Bordeaux is the winner of the 7th District Congressional race. With uh, She has beaten Rich McCormick, I hate my math, by about 9,000, a little under 9,000 votes, 51.2 to 48.8. That We thought Carolyn Bordeaux, Stephen, was likely to win that race, but uh, McCormick had refused to concede. He thought there might be enough votes out there to put him over the top. Uh, apparently the call is that there aren't votes for him to uh, win. That's a big win for Democrats. That's right. And, you know, it, it, it's it's fair to not concede until there is mathematically no possibility there. And with Gwinnett and Forsyth both having outstanding votes, because those are the two counties in that district, it makes sense. But it is a big win because Bordeaux, speaking of Georgia and close races, Bordeaux lost the closest U.S. House race in history or, or in the 2018 election by just a couple hundred votes. And Rob Woodall, who won, then promptly said he wasn't going to run for re-election, essentially setting off a cascading transformation of Georgia's congressional delegation. So it's a big pickup for Democrats. It's a big pickup. Uh, also down ballot, too, with Gwinnett County races in particular, uh, Democrats surging and picking things up. And so, uh, you know, we also it also is going to be record setting for the number of women that Georgia is sending to Congress. Um, Robin, you, you're in a in a very blue uh, county, as we've uh, talked about earlier. And uh, what's interesting about it with the sixth district, Lucy McBath goes back. She beat Karen Handel. Seventh district, Carolyn Bordeaux, the Democrat, goes back to cab. You know, you're kind of the the circle around the city of Atlanta is now just about complete, isn't it? Right, it is. Uh, I was just looking at the latest numbers, which are not that current. They're from around, I think, 11, yeah, around 1030 this morning out of Clayton. And they had, they, these don't reflect Georgia at large in any way whatsoever, but uh, Purdue uh, was at 14,275 votes and Ossoff was at 92,644. Uh, if you look at Warnock and Leffler's race. Warnock has 64,995 in Clayton to Leffler's 7,040. But there is another candidate, Deborah Jackson, who had 13,556, and she had the second most votes in that race. So you know, what happens in Clayton doesn't reflect the state of Georgia as a whole. In fact, it's frequently quite the opposite. But it does kind of – it is emblematic of the blue trend in the state. Um, Tia, let's go on to a couple of other races as well. Um, Senate race number one uh, for two days plus, David Perdue was hanging on by his fingernails to that 50 percent threshold, which would have allowed him to escape without a runoff. As of about 27 minutes ago, he was still at 49.8 percent uh Ossoff at 47.8 so there's almost I mean we'll see but it's almost no chance now I think that there won't be a runoff but but here's what I really want to you can comment on that of course but but I want to expand on that and then bring it, uh, everybody else in it as well um to some extent Democrats do have I mean a runoff is a runoff but Ossoff underperformed uh, Joe Biden. He did not do as well as Joe Biden in Georgia, whereas David Perdue, I think, outperformed uh, the president. Uh, what does that tell us about where we're headed? Yeah, I'm looking at the Secretary of State's website right now, and it looks like right now Perdue and Trump are about neck and neck. It's only about a thousand votes mm. separating the two. But you're right. John Ossoff got about a hundred thousand votes less than Joe Biden. But what it tells us is um, the third party candidates uh, had a little bit of impact, but also I don't know if some of that is just not the normal drop off between uh, down ballot races, particularly because we know Democrats tend to be, you know, those less frequent voters that might not be invested beyond the top of the ticket. So um, I wouldn't read. I know folks are reading into it. And even Ossoff this morning when he had his event at Grant Park, um, the media asked him about that. And he basically said, look, we'll look at all the numbers, but 
Right now, what we're focused on is we put David Perdue in the runoff, and that gives us another chance to try to beat him. So that's what Ossoff's message has been. Right. <clears throat> what I would look at in that race particularly is the fact that um, Purdue ran about two percentage points ahead, is running about it with a two-point lead over Ossoff, whereas Biden is tied essentially with Trump and, and uh, slightly ahead of him now. So clearly, um, you know, uh, uh, Biden out, you know, outperformed Ossoff. Um, and we hit, when we head into this runoff, um, the two runoffs, um, you know, I think clearly it's going to be a turnout game. This is going to be about determining which party can get its voters to come back to vote again. Uh, and it's going to be different this time because we're going to have a lot of absentee voting. Uh, it's going to be different this time because control of the U.S. Senate is going to be at stake uh, in all likelihood. Uh, Democrats can pick up both the seats that, that would get them to 50. And it's going to be different this time because we have a high-profile African-American candidate in a runoff. So that should help Democrats do something they have not done, uh, been able to do in, in, in earlier runoffs, which is get African-American voters to come back and vote again in, in, in the runoff. Um, so these are going to be very, very interesting uh, to watch. Uh, George is going to be the center of the political universe for the next two years, and millions of dollars are going to be spent on these races, and we're going to see you know, national party leaders and coming in here to, to campaign. Uh, and it's going to be very exciting. And we're going to get to see a lot more ads on television. Yeah. I, I, I think it's <laughs> Yeah. I mean, what, what's, what's interesting to me is this, uh, double barrel, so to speak, uh, both, both Senate seats going to a runoff and what the kind of coalitions that will be built. If you view both Senate races combined, John Ossoff turns out a slightly different electorate than Raphael Warnock, uh, same, maybe a little bit less with Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. But to see the strengths and weaknesses of each of those candidates be uh, picked up by the other candidate in the other race is going to be really interesting to see those margins because, you know, yes, there are two Senate seats. Yes, somebody's going to vote for uh, John Ossoff, but they're also voting for Raphael Warnock. So it's essentially a ticket. And uh, in, in these geographic concepts of campaigning and these ideological concepts uh, and demographic, it's going to be interesting to see how these four candidates fan out in the next two months to really maximize their coalitions to win and what will definitely be a lower turnout than what we've seen in this November election. Tia? I agree. And I think it is going to be interesting to see that warnock Ossoff ticket, whereas I don't know if we will see as much of Purdue and Leffler campaigning together. They won't be able to get around it, but it may not be as uh, much synergy as you'll see on the Democratic side, especially since we, we're waiting to see how Kelly Leffler tries to moderate herself after running so far right. In, in hopes of besting Doug Collins, you know, how does she get, you know, try to appeal to those voters at the center? And that's part of the reason why David Perdue has kept his distance from her. But what happens now? I think, Robin, that is a great point. Uh, Kelly Leffler had to run so far to the right, so far to the right, that she was happy to campaign with Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ms. QAnon. Um, and David Perdue tried to stay. At, the PACs that supported David attacked aggressively against uh, uh, John Ossoff, just as the Ossoff PACs did against Perdue. Uh, but Perdue tried to stay a little bit more central. He was really in a genuine uh, general election mode. And now to see the two of them together may be a problem for David Perdue. I. You know, I, I think that having Purdue in this race with Ossoff, it, it is really going to be Purdue's race to lose. It really is. I know Ossoff has come from behind. He has been dogging it. He's been campaigning very hard, but he's still up against that big money machine. And I, I, I just, to me, it's a toss-up. 
Uh, Alan, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the Senate races. Um, and maybe I, I, I haven't quite put my, uh, wrapped my arms around this yet, and, and so bear with me. But it, it does feel as though there are states that President Trump did not do well in where Republican Senate candidates uh, did pretty well. I mean, and in some cases won. I mean, uh, Trump did not win most of Maine. He won uh, like uh, one delegate, I think, out of Maine. But Susan Collins prevailed uh, in that race as an example. And, you know, we've always, you, of course, talk about the nationalization of politics. But it, what am I, do I have anything even partly correct here in saying that in some cases voters rejected Trump even though they preferred Republicans in down-ballot races? Is there evidence um, of that? Well, what I'm seeing, and I've looked at I've done a quick and dirty kind of uh, statistical analysis of both the presidential and the Senate elections and the relationship between them. And what I'm seeing is that overall there's a very, very tight fit between what's happening in the presidential okay. race and what's happening in the Senate race. In 2016, every Senate contest was won by the party that won the presidential election in the same state. Every one. In 2020, I think there are going to be a, there's at least one exception, and that's Susan Collins. You mentioned the one exception to the rule. Susan Collins won by about okay. seven points, even though uh, Donald Trump lost the state by about 10 or 11. So she ran well ahead of Donald Trump. And she did it because, you know, she uh, is perceived as a relatively moderate Republican, notwithstanding the fact that a lot of Democrats were furious with her for, you know, her some of her votes for Trump nominees to the Supreme Court, et cetera. Uh, but nonetheless, she has that reputation, and she and she also is well known, and in, in Maine's a small state where you get to meet a lot of the people in person. So I think that that served her well. But she is the exception to the rule, just like Joe Manchin was the exception to the rule. You know, uh, yeah. there is the rare incumbent who can run that far ahead of their ticket. Now, incumbents in general do get a bit of a boost. What I saw in my analysis, that they get a three or four point boost over their party. Um, but overall, it's still it, this is a very, very nationalized election. And the other thing I saw was when you compare Hillary Clinton's margin in 2016 with Joe Biden's margin in 2020, you find that there's almost a perfect fit except that Biden is running consistently a few points ahead of Hillary Clinton, about an average of about three points ahead of Hillary Clinton. Uh, it's almost a perfect fit. These are you know, the exact same constituencies, the exact same divisions in the electorate. One or two states moved a little bit off of that, uh, and Florida being the most notable one. Uh, Georgia's, Georgia's shift from minus five to even was a little bit larger uh, than, than that. But overall... There was just a very, very close correspondence between so the, the Biden coalition is the Clinton coalition, plus a little bit. He was able to pick up a few, uh, uh, you know, a small share of those Trump voters and some new voters. All right. Um, Alan Abramowitz, you get the last word in uh, the segment. We've got to take a break. Let's do that and come back uh, with more on Political Rewind. Tia Mitchell, maybe a last word about the Senate runoffs uh, here in Georgia uh, coming up. Um, it, and certainly in race number two, uh, the, uh, or rather in race number one, the Purdue-Ossoff race, we're likely to see a continuation of what we've already seen. There's no reason to think there's going to be a radical change in the kind of messaging, the kind of attack ads, and the extraordinary amounts of money uh, that will be spent on that race. I think that's correct, isn't it? Yes. Um, and again, being with John Ossoff this morning, he um, had some of the same critiques. He's been levying at David Perdue, and we know David Perdue is probably going to come back with some of the same critiques, accusing Ossoff of being a socialist and having ties to communism and all those things that we heard during the general election. And Stephen, uh, the way things stand right now, with the victory of uh, Gary Peters in Michigan— the victory of Susan Collins in Maine, we are now 
in a dead tie, 48 Republicans, 48 Democrats in the United States Senate, which is why, Stephen, the runoff here will capture world attention, right? Exactly. You know, Democrats and Republicans for a while now have said that the road to the right house and the road to the control of the Senate came through to Georgia. So really, it wasn't surprised to many people not named Nate Silver when that happened to be the case with the votes coming. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, Georgia, I, I was I, somebody told me the other day and, uh, you know, that Georgia is really a microcosm of what's happening in our country. Uh, demographically, politically, you've got things like uh, issues around voter suppression, you've got racial injustice, you've got the pandemic, you've got economic issues. And so Georgia is kind of, a, you know, 7.5 million voter experiment about where our country could be headed in the next decade or so. And, you know, it's fitting that we're going to have a Senate runoff to decide control of the chamber uh, playing out in 59 days, I believe. Uh, you know, I think what's fascinating here is that when you look overall at what's happening in this election, um, so Joe Biden is going to end up winning the national popular vote in this election by a margin of five percentage points or possibly more. And this will be the seventh time in the last eight presidential elections that the Democrats have won the popular vote in the presidential election. This tells us something, you know, about the fact that uh, the Republican Party is having difficulty competing in these elections, but it's been relying on the Electoral College uh, in order to eke out victories, as it did in 2000, and then again to an even greater degree in 2016, and came pretty close to doing again in 2020. Um, it's also interesting at the same time, uh, Democrats have such a hard time within the U.S. Senate. Why? Because the U.S. Senate vastly overrepresents rural, small-town America. Um, we have 50 states with two senators each, which means a state like Wyoming with 570,000 people has the same number of senators as California with 40 million people. Democrats represent a much larger share of the U.S. population in the U.S. Senate than Republicans do, but it doesn't matter. Um, because every state still has two U.S. senators. So the Senate is uh, a Republican. You know, Republicans have a significant advantage in the Senate these days because of their strength in small-town rural America, which we saw in Georgia. You know, that's the, that's the Republican stronghold in Georgia now, but it's trending you know, away because that's getting smaller. Um, so this tells us something about where we are in American politics right now, where the parties are right now, and where we're headed. And Robin, I, Alan just absolutely uh, nailed it. It was exactly what I wanted to talk about. Not only the distribution of uh, parties in the of the two parties in the U.S. Senate, but the Electoral College itself. As Alan just pointed out, uh, Joe Biden will have more than four million votes uh, more than uh, uh, Donald Trump before this thing is over with. And yet the Electoral College is still uh, we're still undecided exactly on whether Biden is going to have enough to uh, win this thing. The New York Times this morning, uh, in talking about that, quoted uh, uh, Alan's uh, colleague at Emory, Carol Anderson, who, who is one of the really uh, uh, great academics dealing with the issue of voter suppression. And here's what she said. I've been thinking about how hard folks have to work to be able to vote, what it takes to overcome all of this that voter suppression has put in place, what it takes to, when, and that someone could be ahead by millions of votes, bigger than most cities and probably some states, and still we have what amounts to a nail biter. Um, the Electoral College is what it is, but once again, we see uh, that uh, the will of the people uh, in many ways, is thwarted by the Electoral College. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's a remnant of uh, and slavery, basically. Um, I, I was speaking with Pat Pilar yesterday, who was the former Clayton County Democratic Party chair at some point and who is on the elections board, and she was expressing some concerns about getting African-American voters in particular to turn out on these runoffs. Um, if, if they don't turn out, it will not change. If they do turn out, they have a very good chance of giving Democratic control 
to the other side of the aisle. And as long as you have the Electoral College in play, if you don't turn out and do those two races, forget it. Nothing's going to change. Um, we're very close to being out of time. But, Stephen, one more thing that we really ought to at least address very briefly at this point is uh, the thwarted chances uh, that Georgia Democrats uh, had ended up having to uh, not just gain seats in the Georgia House of Representatives. They wanted to take the majority. They were looking to see if they could pick up 16 seats. That ended up being a disaster for them. Um, I don't know what the final vote count is there now. Do, do you know, did they pick up one seat, I think? And is it neutral? What happened? I believe, uh, based on reporting that the Georgia News Lab did for us, that it will be about one or two of the 16 seats that they needed. Um, there will probably be some more time and energy spent reflecting on this after the election, but I, it is possible that um, the voting of Biden over Trump is kind of the leading edge of sentiments in Georgia, and that maybe, you know, suburban Republicans, for example, were more willing to get rid of Donald Trump as president, but less willing to get rid of their state or local lawmaker that maybe matters a little bit more that they have uh, more connection to and is probably a little bit more closer to the center than uh, President Trump has been. And um, we'll see how these final, this next two years of the legislative session goes to see if any of those can survive another year plus redistricting. Um, before we leave, uh, the governor, Governor Kemp, Speaker of the House David Ralston, and uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan just issued a joint statement about uh, the election and about President Trump's accusations of uh, cheating, of manipulation, of uh, 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 dishonest uh, work by Democrats to win the election. And here's what it says. I think it's important to read it. Free and fair elections are the foundation of our American government. Any allegations of intentional fraud or violations of election law must be taken seriously and investigated. We trust that our Secretary of State will ensure that the law is followed as written and that Georgia's elections re election results include all legally cast ballots and only legally cast ballots. We will continue to follow this situation to assure, ensure a fair and transparent process. Uh, Tia, the, issue, the thing about that is it suggests that perhaps Donald Trump has a point when he says there has been cheating by Democrats to win the election. It doesn't say we've seen no evidence from uh, anybody that there's anything illegal or uh, uh, manipulative that's gone on here. All right, we've lost Tia. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Stephen, respond to that. Well, so I, I think what's notable about the statement from the three top Republicans in the state is what they don't say. They don't explicitly go like some other officials uh, as far as saying, you know, oh, there's probably fraud. There's no way that Trump could have lost, et cetera, et cetera. But it's about as like milquetoast neutral as you could say, you know, mentioning yeah. legally counted votes. I mean, all votes that are counted are legal votes. So it's an encouraging sign that at least the former secretary of state who held that job for eight years didn't endorse anything bad. Okay, Stephen Fowler, you get the last word of the show. We are out of time. Alan Abramowitz, thank you so much. You've been with us throughout this election cycle. I'm glad you were here today. Robin Kemp, a real pleasure to have you. Uh, Tia, Stephen Fowler, thanks for being with us. I'm Bill Nygut. We're back on Monday. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and go get a flu shot. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>